The AWP interviews is a series of conversations between widened participation graduates and art world professionals and staff from arts organisations around diversity within London's art sector. While many organisations run programmes that seek to include and engage diverse communities within their activities, the sector's um, workforce remains predominantly white and middle class. These interviews ask what barriers exist that make it harder for graduates who might not fit into the typical art world to mould um, and forge a career in the arts. On what basis does the art world exclude race, class, gender, disability, sexuality? Where do these barriers spring from? And how might a graduate better navigate them? What are individual and collective responsibilities as the art community to overcome them? So we have Hansi Mamozin Gordon here with us. Hansi is an independent curator and a writer. Um, she has worked with Culture Plus Conflict, Autograph, The Showroom and Tate Modern. She curated, alongside Paul Goodwin, a touring exhibition titled Untitled, Art Under Conditions of Our Time, and also founded a curated residency program called Future Assembly, which is a platform targeted at artists from Africa and their diaspora in England. We will be talking about Hansi's experience in curating exhibitions and public programs, and it will be interesting to know how she created opportunities for herself as an independent curator, and hear practical tips for artists to create opportunities for themselves, given the barriers that may exist. So, um, welcome, Hansi. Thank you, anyway. <laughs> Thank you. I'm looking forward to our, to our conversation. So that was a nice introduction. <laughs> Thank you. How did you get involved in the art world, um, curation to be specific? Yeah, so um, my journey to curating um, definitely took me around in circles before I landed in one particular place. Um, my upbringing was quite unusual. Um, I grew up in West Wales in quite a kind of creative community I was always surrounded by artists and kind of alternative types of people um, and my schooling in, in Wales was uh, state schooling but always kind of quite creative um, environments. Um, I was the first person within my immediate family to go to university um, but I quite in, just kind of enjoyed school and enjoyed studying and just had this in my head that I was going to go to university. I had no idea really what that meant. Um, in the context of Wales, you don't really get much exposure to different kinds of careers, like people work in a shop or in a garage, mm -hmm. or you don't even really know what a graphic designer is, or, you know, London is full of graphic designers. I, you know, I had no idea what this kind of job was, um, but it, this, just this idea that I was going to university. So I applied um, and I studied English literature, media and cultural studies at Kingston University. So it was a subject that I enjoyed and I just kind of followed it and mm. it was finding my way really. Um, and I kind of get away with that in the art world because Kingston is known for the arts, you know, it's not known for English literature, but mm. you know, people don't really notice. So um, I found during those BA studies that I was already kind of leaning towards um, thinking about visual art. So in my dissertation, I focused on um, critical approaches to the arts. It was kind of like a journalism module. So I was doing like kind of like art writing. I was talking about the arts in general. So thinking about theatre. I'd always kind of had an interest in theatre through literature. And then I kind of started to focus on photography. But it was all quite broad and kind of through writing. 
writing has really been a mainstay for me and something that I've always been passionate about but probably always a bit nervous to kind of pursue in a serious way so it was always just something I did on the side and in many ways kind of art became my subject so then when I was in your position <laughs> I got went out and got my first job and I worked as a print production assistant for Bowdoin which is a clothing catalogue um, and then due to a kind of fortunate um, number of circumstances that aligned um, my, so my, my dad is Nigerian, uh, my mum is English, and my dad had been in the UK for probably 30-odd years. Um, he lost his father and went back to Lagos um, to uh, take over the family business. Um, and my best friend, who I grew up with in Wales, is an editor, um, and she got a job editing The African Apprentice and was working out there. The, the, it overran and they said to her, um, do you want to go back to London because obviously you might want to see your family and she said no, I really want you to fly my best friend out here. Instead it would be really nice for me to see her. So I was like, great, I'd never been to Nigeria before. I hadn't grown up with my dad so it was a great opportunity to like yeah. spend some more time with him. Um, and so they flew me out there. So this was like my first introduction to Africa, Nigeria, Lagos, you know, yeah. all of that. Yeah. And my family over there as well, meeting them for the first time. So I was staying at this hotel called Bogabiri House um, in Lagos, which is quite well known as like a cultural centre. Uh, that you know, lots of artists and creatives kind of gravitate there. And I was in the breakfast room one day, and I met this curator, um, and she said, "Oh, she said, oh, what are you interested in?" And I, because I'd quit my job in London to to go out to just. To Nigeria and just you know see what happened. She said, "What are you interested in?" I said, "Oh, I'm quite interested in art and this kind of thing." She said, "You have to come to CCA Lagos. I'm going. I'm doing a talk there later." So I went along to this cultural centre, um, and it was Centre for Contemporary Art, run by Bissy Silver. So this is in 2008. Um, so I went along, and I was you know really interested in the program. And and this particular talk was about curating. And to to that day, I, I hadn't really heard. I didn't really know what it was, or I hadn't really necessarily heard about it. Um, but I kept going back um, and I, I found a chance to speak to Bissy and I said I was really interested in, you know, in learning more about this and somehow persuaded her to give me a job. So I ended up working with her um, and really that's how I was introduced to this idea of curating, um, working with artists and that's why my, I guess my point of reference within the kind of art world started with artists in Lagos and in Nigeria and because I hadn't even though I was living in London I w at that point I, I didn't hadn't really explored like the arts and cultural scene in London I wasn't really fully aware of it having you know been brought up in Wales and then you know outposted in Surrey so I hadn't somehow I'd like missed all of that and yeah. it was only really when I got to Nigeria that I started to immerse myself in contemporary art so that was kind of quite unusual I think in some ways for somebody coming from the UK to over there so that always felt like my jumping off point yeah. um, so that's kind of how I ended up um, finding curating and then um, un unfortunately I had some um, difficult family circumstances and, and lost my father um, during that time so I came back to the UK um, and I then was working in a call centre and I was, you know, thinking, how am I going to make this work? I had this crazy project idea that I kind of wanted to do, and this laptop that I bought of my friend that had the W was missing on this <laughs> laptop. 
And I saw this, I got this email and it was scholarships, Royal College of Art curating. So I was like, great, I have to apply. And it was yeah. like two or three days to apply. And I thought, well, there was only one place left at Turner Contemporary in Margate. So I was like, well, I have to just apply. And um, so I made the application with this laptop that didn't have a W. <laughs> I had to cut and paste the W all the way through my application form. I had this, some crazy proposal that I'd, that was sitting on my computer, I thought I'd send that, and then I wrote a review of um, a show at October Gallery, and that was my application, and sent it off, um, and got a place on the MA curating course at the Royal College of Art with Karen Alexander and Mark Nash. So that was kind of like my, my starting introduction to kind of like seriously thinking about curating. Wow. So when you were in Lagos and you had just met this year and you'd spoken um, you'd listen to the, the talk, the curation talk. Um, how did you then like sort of catch up on all these things that were new to you? Like what resources did you have in Lagos apart from the sea and the talk? Yeah, yeah. So I think to this day you always feel like you're trying to catch up. And actually it was when I was at Tate I had this realisation that it's you don't have to know everything up front. You have to be in a pri privileged position enough to have access to the knowledge mm -hmm. of the things you need to know. So yeah. uh, probably up until that point, I was thinking, I need to know this and I need to read. So it's, you know, huge amounts of reading. And I have to say that the library at CCA is a hub of knowledge and it's something that's been really central uh, to Bissi's um, project yeah. in Lagos is to build a library where that is a resource for young curators and artists mm -hmm. in Lagos and further afield to come to visit to come and access some of that knowledge. So. That was there and available to me yeah. um, and at that point in time for me it was also a kind of self-discovery I was really interested in finding about Nigerian art because mm. in a way it was like teaching me about myself yeah. um, but you're always feeling like you're trying to like learn more and that you need to know more um, mm. but there comes a point where you realize it's it's also about access to knowledge yeah and often what happens is that the more senior people get they get better access to knowledge whether that's somebody paying for your time for you to go and research a particular topic that you need to know about um, or you know having access to different libraries etc but you don't necessarily have to know everything at your fingertips yeah. at one point in time. So you had um, learned a lot of stuff from Lagos, how long were you? I was there for about a year in that first instance and then travelled back and forward quite a few times in my kind of early 20s. Okay. Yeah. And then you'd come, so did you get on, you got on the course? I got on the course. Okay. Um, it was the last place, and they, then I was out in Margate, and so suddenly that was like a massive culture shock. Lagos via Brixton, and then Margate. So <laughs> that was like a shock. Yeah. But also like a great learning opportunity as well. So when you um, went to do the course, what like what was it like during that time? Uh, it was, I think, now I've realised, looking back, that... For me, because we will probably touch on this later, but yeah. we took you, um, you know, the issues around like class and race and like yeah. how they intersect. And like, I'm from a single parent family. We did not have a lot of money growing up, um, and I always had the necessity to work to earn earn mm -hmm. money. So even though I had this, you know, on the one hand, I was like following things that I enjoyed, and that was always as a means. To, like to have a job to survive ultimately it wasn't like this luxury of like oh I'm just gonna do this for fun and yeah. you know be independently wealthy so that's good so there was always this drive beyond like 
what I was learning and that this had to be like something that pay paid as well, like a job at the end of the day. Um, and so the scholarship at the Royal College of Art was ideal for that because we were um, working four days a week um, we were given a stipend and we were given our fees were paid so there was no way I could have afforded to go to the Royal College of Art otherwise so that's why it was like a perfect opportunity for me um, but it was fraught with all kinds of tensions um, we were the first cohort in this iteration so it was the Inspire program um, and for whatever reasons the college-based students weren't informed of our presence um, or, or our, even the fact that our course existed until like on the day of their enrolment. So they're like thinking they're having this really ultra expensive, exclusive experience and suddenly, you know, there's another double the amount of people who are also getting that but they're getting it for free. So that caused a lot of tension which was never really resolved sadly in our year. So, you know, all of this is a very long time ago and, and well forgotten and we've all probably worked together as colleagues and interacted within the art world since, but at that time, that's the kind of experience. So, how, like, how I wanted to ask how long the, the course was for yeah. and if, like, throughout the course, because you mentioned that firm that you came from and if, obviously, the fees were paid and you had a scholarship, mm -hmm. but how supportive were they yeah. in terms of, say, the end goal yeah. of, like, the course and throughout the, the time? Yeah. Um, so the course was two years, two years long. Um, my my mum's always been really support, like just happy for me to do, you know, whatever. But she never worked, so for her it was just like exciting. I was doing these interesting things, and um, yeah, I think my dad's family they were just kind of supportive because we just lost my dad, and it was like an MA, a master, so that had like its own, you know, prestige. Um, so they were kind of happy for that. I remember my, when I first went back to Lagos, my dad describing it to one of his friends as a summer job. Because he did, yeah, he, so on that level, like, he didn't really take it seriously. Yeah. But I think they were just happy that I was doing something and then it was um, to a certain level. And my mum's side are very, like, working, my nan's very working class. And they didn't really get it, but they were just kind of, like, happy for me. But having, like, institutions like CCA, and do you think that helps change? the way like families or like I'm from a Ghanaian home and how they perceive like the art practice or any creative practice do you think having institutions like CCA have changed? I think so in the sense in that when something you know CCA is a great success in that it's you know 10 years old and the fact that it's been doing what it's been doing for that amount of time I think gives people a sense of reassurance. I, you know I think some of the difficulty is that um, if you're from like a working class family like the the necessity to make money is it's real and uh, the reason probably possibly the reason that your, your parents might be worried about you pursuing a career in the arts is not for the arts itself it's for the fact that they're worried you're not ultimately going to be able to make enough money to support yourself and to live <coughs> the life that they want you to enjoy but hopefully with places like CCA having been established for a long time, that gives a sense, of, a little bit of a sense of security to say that there is some longevity and you can see some successes. Mm -hmm. And I think the more that we see um, the successes of artists of colour in, you know, in the main institutions and working, operating at a high level, hopefully that will give some reassurance to say that you know, it can be a means to survive as yeah. well as kind of explore and enjoy your life. Yeah, I think for me it encourages me to like 
um, pursue like another program, pursue a residency or pursue an MA, not just stop at like the undergrad or, you know, just keep on developing like my practice in different areas. I yeah. think I didn't know about um, CCA until as, um, you told me or until like looking at your, your work. Um, so it's definitely encouraging, especially like f from your home that we see art as a like respectable career and yeah. we sort of understand the purpose of it. Yeah. So you finished the course at RCA, what happened next? So we graduated in the, I don't know, July, June, July, and then um, I saw a job that came up. Tate Modern were just doing their big drive around recruiting for a curator of African, focusing on African art. Mm -hmm. And I remember emailing Bissy and I was like, oh, man. I said, oh, look at this, this will be great. And knowing that it was beyond the point I was at at that time, but it kind of put it on my radar and then um, they advertised for an assistant curator job. So I was like, right, I'm going to go for it. So I applied and I got the job. It feels like quite a few things kind of aligned for me in those early years. Um, but one thing I've tried to stop myself from saying all the time is that it was luck because I think women often say that about yeah. their successes, yeah. whereas men will quite often just claim it. Yeah. So I'm trying to move towards that. But um, yeah, I do feel lucky that a number of things kind of fell into place. So I... I got that job as assistant curator at Tate mm -hmm. immediately after graduating from the MA. What you said about like women often like downselling their successes is really true. I've had that being told to me and I find myself often doing it a lot. Um, when I know you told me about um, Sonia Boyce yeah. being a mentor, was it during RCA or So this is Tate? much, much, much later yeah. and um, I, I just want to take this opportunity to say that um, I think my career has been what it has been thanks to um, a number of really inspiring, powerful, creative, forward-thinking women of colour, yeah. black women, um, who work in the arts and they're people who I've worked with sometimes just circumstantially I've not actually gone out necessarily and sought them as mentors but because of whatever situation I've been in mm -hmm. I've been working together with them and just found that really inspiring so mm -hmm. the first person I would say was Busy Silver and she continues to be someone who inspires me to this day and you know I will have an email in my inbox and it will say oh you know do you, are you interested in doing this and I'll follow the line back and invariably it will be you know through her so mm -hmm. I am eternally grateful for that. Um, Karen Alexander, who's another really incredible woman who was in so inspiring in what she did with the, the Inspire course, Just, you know, despite its difficulties, like that was a real passion project and she was really trying to make a step change. Um, Alvira Yangami Ose at Tate, Sapake Angiyama, who I worked <laughs> with at Turner Contemporary actually before Tate, so she went on to be the curator at Manifesta, then Documenta now yeah. Chicago Biennial, so wow. an incredible woman. Then Elvira at Tate, you know, incredible track record, really inspiring, really trying to do things differently. Mm. And uh, Rene Masai at Autograph, and Sonia Boyce. So I, I'm dreading that I've left somebody <laughs> else, but they don't know they're on my list, so that's fine. <laughs> um, but, you know, along, so I guess translating that into how that could be beneficial for others is like when you're to think about, I yeah, know, just 
recognise that mentors can come in all different shapes and sizes and that different opportunities can afford you the chance to learn from, from others uh, and that quite often those connections that you make um, will come back later on in life, maybe not you know immediately but you'll find a way to like reconnect um, and I've um, gained great inspiration from all of these women. Sonia Boyce in particular, one thing, you know, I worked with her quite recently actually, like in the last year and I have to say from Sonia the, the greatest thing I learned was that she she's so incredibly humble despite like all of her successes she is treats people with such kindness and i have to say you know beyond thinking about art that was something which i think is so important to maintain um that you just are really um you know treat people with respect no matter what level you kind of feel that you've attained and how did you like access these people? How did you get to know them? Was it through networking? Most of the time it was just through work. So the work situation that I was in, I happened to be you know, working on a project with this person or that person. So I guess it's just to say that, yes, like um, strategic networking is important, definitely. But you're, maybe your mentor is sitting right next to you now and you don't even realise you haven't even thought about them in that way. But they might have this whole kind of host of knowledge that you haven't tapped into. So it's just thinking about things a bit laterally as well. What are the barriers that you think you'd face like throughout your time, like getting to know the role mm. as what curator does yeah. actually? The, well, the barriers have, have shifted and shift um, through time, but I think one of the main things for me was actually confidence because you have to be really self-confident to... It's, it's also about personality when it comes to curating or probably also as an artist that like you have to feel confident to just get in the room, speak to people, tell them what you're doing, you know, tell them about that project idea. And I'm actually quite a naturally shy person or like quiet. So that for me, you know, maybe my biggest barrier was myself. Mm. So even when I found myself at Tate, like I wasn't, I didn't necessarily feel confident enough to even, you know, because you start to be around people that, you know, you've heard of or you've read their essay. Or, and that for me was quite intimidating. So I think, you know, with a little bit of age and perspective, I think, you know, doing it, well, you, you know, you can't do things again, but I think that was a barrier for me, really. Um, but that, again, I think taps into this idea of when you're coming from a work, you know, this imposter syndrome, like never really feeling good enough, mm -hmm. always feeling there's this gap in my knowledge I have to fill, or um, so not really feeling like I belonged there. And I think, you know, that is a symptom of these institutional um, prejudices that say yeah. that, um, or uh, tendencies to particular way of working and you know I really felt that that was a barrier to me and especially when you get into the institutions like Tate where you're expected to work to kind of work with trustees or patrons these are often people with you know a high earners particular background because they have the money to to buy art yeah. you know and that's really important but then when you bring somebody who's from like rural midwest Wales from a single parent family and you know all the different upbringing that I had and I'm coming to that you yeah that was difficult for me to to kind of bridge that gap yeah. and I think like I understand why those people are really essential for organizations like Tate and, and others to function um, but I don't think we should take it for granted that you can only be good at that job if you're if you're good at speaking that particular language or you know that there's a there's a space for learning and that you know, to bring people, to, in other types of people into that sphere. It doesn't have to just be like, well, you're not naturally good at it because of yeah. your background, so you won't get that opportunity. So yeah. I think that is some work that needs to be done. 
Um, yeah, whether or not there's a desire to do that, I don't know, but it's something that I've thought about on reflection. Yeah, I'd definitely say that was a, like probably a similar experience, although like at a completely different level, just like going into art school in general was like really new for me and um, just drawing on the word language and space, I also didn't feel like I fit in at Wimbledon. So like probably in the first, my first year at uni, I probably wouldn't come in or would go to lectures and because I actually wouldn't understand the language when they were describing certain things, how they would describe paintings. I came from a sports background, so it was a completely new language to me. And also um, being one of the only um, black women at Wimbledon in the painting course was really like hard for me, so I didn't really feel like I fit in that space. Mm -hmm. um, so I just wanted to ask like your thoughts about like universities or institutions and the, di the diversity in like courses and mm -hmm. colleges today? I think it's a huge task to be undertaken and work is being done to kind of like decolonize the curriculum yeah, definitely. and to like decolonize some of these spaces and actually sometimes I feel quite helpless in the face of that because I think actually there's so much of simple systems and ways in which we interact are set up in a hierarchy that reflects colonization or like a colonial mindset that we don't even realize it. Yeah. So there's so much work to be done there. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that attention is, is being drawn to that and, um, and that task is being taken on. Um, on my, my personal experience, when I, by the time I got to university, um, I came via Bristol, which is quite a multicultural... I kept brought, brought up in a predominantly white setting in Wales. Bristol is quite multicultural. Um, and I was really into drum and bass. The drum and bass scene is like hugely multicultural, so you live in this bubble like, oh, you know, we're all in this together. Um, but then actually I think Bristol is quite segregated. Now I kind of think about it as an adult. But well, then I came to university, and, but it was actually the first time I'd been around that many people from different backgrounds, yeah. even myself. So, you know, I was too shy to join the Afro-Caribbean society. I didn't really feel like that was for me necessarily. I didn't really... So my own experience of it, I don't know how that fits. This was a long time ago. This is like, I don't know, 10, 15, between 10 and 15 years ago now. So obviously things have shifted since then. And in my working life, I'm not yet in, involved in the kind of academic sphere. So yeah. I'm not kind of engaged with it, I'd say in a contemporary sense. Mm. So I don't know if that is very helpful. Well, I can say that things have been done, especially at my university, slowly in terms of like just simple things like the kind of lectures that they'll put on or like the tutors that they would employ mm. nowadays yeah um guest speakers I think yeah those things are changing um, actually now i've said that um i did spend some time in the history of art department and actually i was shocked really shocked and frustrated by the curriculum and what was being taught because this was after my time at Tate. This is about feeling like you're not good enough and feeling like there's gaps in your knowledge. Yeah. So thinking, oh, you know, surely I don't know as much as everyone else. I must go and like carry on learning because I'm never going to be good enough. Yeah. So I put myself in that situation and I was like, no, this is... After you've been in, you know, Tate for all its failings, it is very forward thinking. It's, it's much further ahead than 
institutions that are feeding it, which is worrying because you know the majority of curators come from a very small handful of London's curatorial courses. The lectures that were being put on were, you know, decades out of date in my eyes. So that was quite a shock. So I was actually enraged about that. Mm. I'd forgotten. <laughs> I had blocked it out. But I think part of that is because after doing the Inspire course, we were trained to fight these battles. And at a certain point, you get tired of fighting them. And this is one thing that I've come across recently in recruiting for the, the next Future Assembly. I asked like a number of the partners to put forward groups of artists and that was about reaching into networks that I don't that aren't my own to try and expand like self, my circle of knowledge. And so many of the artists put forward by all of the partners were really um, consumed with identity politics. Mm. And you know, I think it's it's really important, but I, what I worry is that it's a trap. And like you're trained to work in this way, it's all they let you do, and then they say, Oh well, do you know what? She's alright, but that's all she does. Like I wanna see something beyond that, and like that can be a trap as a curator as well. Because it's like, well, we'll give you a platform to speak about um, race or Africa or whatever, but we're not really going to give you space to talk about anything else. But if we don't want to talk about those things, well, there's no platform for you. So it becomes a bit seasonal and it's a bit of a trap. So that's why I feel a bit fatigued by that, which is why sometimes I have to step, sidestep um, and think about other stuff for a while. Yeah, I definitely see that a lot. I remember like maybe in the last two years of my, like at uni, that's when I started opening my eyes to like application forms and actually getting my work out there, which I um, rarely did because I didn't think the work was good enough anyway. But all the applications were these questions that were talking about identity, politics, um, being black, British, and th- these things that I really naturally struggle to speak about within paintings because I spoke about other things although um, you could find the link in it, but I spoke about other things. And so sometimes I found it hard to apply. I couldn't apply for these things because I wasn't making work about these things. And that was, I felt like that was all I could apply mm, that to. This is my suspicion. And it's really um, interesting hearing you say that because this is um, what I fear. Yeah, Def- yeah, that was definitely my experience. So yeah, I remember like telling about a certain application and also another friend about a certain about I was like my it, my work doesn't talk about that and then well, this wasn't it but this was another friend that she was like it doesn't matter I think it's the fact that the body making it was yeah um, it's black and so immediately that's that's what you're talking about I was like but um, my work isn't talking about yeah identity politics yeah. or things like that yeah, yeah. And you could say that, but then why does it? Why does your body have to be on that level of heightened visibility? Why can't you just be a person, like yeah. just making stuff? You know, that's really strange because, but like in my second and third year, that those were like most of the applications that I was I was seeing or was being like offered to me. And mm. um, yeah, the <laughs> way off topic. Um, no, to me it's really on topic. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, but, but that's definitely true. I saw that. Yeah. Like, what advice would you give to emerging artists and practitioners, curators, in terms of like finding opportunities for themselves and how yeah. they balance that? I always believe that you make your own opportunities, yeah. and you, um, well, from where I'm coming from, yeah, you have to, and um, one thing I, from being on, there was a moment 
from being on the RCA course where there was a kind of change in pace for me in my work life, which has never gone away. And that is basically you're working like all day, every day, <laughs> Sunday to Sunday, yeah. work is always on. But I think that's when it is your passion and it's something yeah. that you that you love doing. Um, I think you shouldn't, I think you should do things because you have the desire to make that thing or write that piece or create yeah. that work. Um, and you might have to find other ways to bring in that, bring in the financial side. It might not be that those, initially, that those tasks will pay you. So it's yeah. balancing that. How do you um, bring in the income and kind of create things? But I think don't wait for somebody to come and give you an opportunity. Is what I'm yeah. trying to say. If you want to do something, just get out and do the, do it. Do the research. There 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 are funding opportunities out there. So mm-hmm. you know it might be lots of writing applications. Yeah. Um, and you know it is hard graft and it might be that you have you know two or even three jobs Um, but at a certain point as well I would say stop working for free don't like so that's I'm contradicting myself a little bit but you know I think when you're starting out you just need to fulfill that drive to make or do or experiment But also, what the art world is really bad at is asking people to work for free um, and expecting you to give your time and creativity and skill for free because it's like a great opportunity and you should be grateful. (laughs) So there comes a point at which you need to draw a line because the the moment you do that, people will start paying you because you're valuing what you have to offer. And again, it comes down to this thing of like valuing what you bring to the table and, you know, requiring that other people value that as well whether that's just your time or whatever it is, your skills. So just keep an eye on that. Like, just don't do too much for free because, um, you know, it's unfair because actually there is money in the art world. There's a myth to say that there's not, you know, millions if not billions of pounds circulate. It's just, it doesn't necessarily go up and down the system. It goes round and round at the top. So, um, you know, just... and And if somebody really wants you to do something, then they should come... To you, you know, as a curator, I, I try, you know, I, I would say nine times out of ten, I always try to go with funding. If I'm asking an artist to do something, I will meet them with an offer. Whatever I can pay them, I will. So I think it's also for curators, because you're in that position of responsibility, make sure that you try to, to bring those things together before you invite somebody to do something. Because um, it's really important just to value each other yeah. um, in that way. Um, and you know, people always say, don't take no for an answer. You could say that, um, but just keep trying and yeah. work hard and have fun, enjoy it as well. Yeah, yeah. you mentioned um, that one of the barriers that you faced was like self-confidence and always think, feeling like you needed to catch up or you didn't have the adequate like, language. I know there's several um, students that feel like that or practitioners that feel like that. I don't know if it's fair to say, especially from people, um, like people that are, you know, from the white and participation um, spectrum. Um, but I definitely feel like that. I felt like I always needed to read more before I had a conversation, and so I was always scared to have a conversation because mm. I didn't think I'd either have the right language or right information or understanding. Yeah. What would you say to like emerging? Yeah. I completely relate to that, and. Um, I think it comes a little bit with age where you just, it's like self-acceptance and you just realise that you are enough, you know, what you have to offer is unique and 
bit like take it or leave it after a certain <laughs> point. But I totally yeah. relate to that, and I. Um, okay. So it's just again, it's about valuing what you have to bring, and your perspective is unique. So you're a curator, and, and you know you understand like different fields of like art, but especially within fine art, like a lot of artists or emerging artists think that the only way to be successful is being signed by a gallery and all those things. Um, you've spoken about creating opportunities for yourself. For yourself, um, can you give like just little insights or examples as to what they what they can do for themselves apart from sitting there and thinking like a gallery will come in? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say, I mean, your generation know this more than I do, but use social media because that is you know a great platform for getting worldwide attention to to what you're doing. Doesn't necessarily. What one thing that puts me off of that is the cult of personality. Again, being quite a shy person, but you know, you, you could just be about your work and what you're doing. Don't sit down and wait, but go out and speak to people. Whether it's just you know having an informal chat, um, coffee, meeting people. The different roles or opportunities roles. that may exist in the art sector that they that they yeah. probably have, as well as you know carrying yeah. their practice on. So, my personal choice was to take like a money job outside of the arts and then do my, my kind of artistic or curatorial practice within the arts. Okay. Um, so that's one route, partly because it pays better if you do that way. Yeah. Um, but you can then keep things a bit separate. But I also think that, um, you know, the world needs... Art- like, the artist's vision and perspective is so valuable that actually, like, having that input in other sectors can actually be hugely valuable. One thing I've really enjoyed by, by keeping them separate is that you get to like be the creative person yeah. <laughs> in this other sector where it's like in the art world like everyone's fighting to have an idea and like yeah. so that can be quite refreshing in a way yeah. because you can like bring that to a whole new environment mm-hmm. where you know other people don't necessarily have that knowledge and then yeah. suddenly you're the one who's able to share that with them. Yeah. So so that can be nice and I think yeah, it's important to, to make a living and and I think that, that so it depends on what you view as success. So that's another thing just to sure. think about as well. Yeah, sure. If you don't mind talking about a future assembly and describing the project. Yeah. So this is a project that I initiated after I finished working at Tate and it kinda of came out of trying to realign my relationship with with artists, with art, what I was doing in my career, like what was important to me, because um, I'd spent a lot of time doing other people's projects, and yeah. what I kind of landed upon was that I love, I really love working closely with artists, um, that I wanted to be, to support artists to develop, so I was kind of interested in that, like emerging early stage, um, and because whilst I was at Tate, I'd been involved in research, um, for, to build a collection um, in relation to artists from Africa and mm-hmm. the diaspora. Um, I'd kind of been involved in that scene here in London and um, what, I start, what I kind of observed is that um, this happens with Africa and it happens with other kind of regions is that there's um, this kind of like become a bit faddy so like it's in fashion everything's about African art then it's like Asian art then it's, yeah. you know so it goes around a bit like that and galleries pop up they come up they go down and um, but and so there were 
some opportunities to show commercially for artists from Africa, um, but there was quite there's very few places to experiment um, and to not necessarily make work that's going to fit within that kind of gallery circuit. So I was interested in creating a space for the artists could experiment. Um, so I set up the residency, um, and it was also about partnerships and extending networks and, and kind of trying to reach out to artists who I didn't know personally and to always question myself when I'm making a decision about whether I could have looked a little bit further mm. for somebody else or, you know, and I don't always get it right and there's lots of conflicts. Even now I'm doing the next iteration of it, um, there are always conflicts in every decision I make because I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm kind of interrogating myself with the same questions that I would somebody else. So, you know, the gender balance or the level of access to different opportunities or whatever. So, um, so I should probably say up front because that didn't make any sense <laughs> to somebody who doesn't know the program. Yeah, <laughs> you can edit this. Okay. Program. Yeah. Um, so. I guess because it's a huge topic, and I don't know if we have much time, but what should I say? What's the most important thing? Should I just focus on this round? Yeah. Fo okay. Yeah, focus, focus on this on round, what's coming, of what's, what's coming up. Now. Yeah. Because it's yeah. like a long story and yeah. then to get to that and then that. Okay. Yeah. So Future Assembly is a bespoke residency programme um, for artists from the African continent uh, to come to the UK, and they have like peer-to-peer -peer mentoring, um, it's an opportunity to make work if they want to, to learn about their practice. Maybe they have a particular problem they want to work on and explore. Um, the first edition we had an exhibition and two public programs. This time round, um, it's forming part of the process and development um, and it's gonna feed into the Lagos Biennial 2019. Um, and it's uh, supported by New Art Exchange. They're the kind of like executive producers of this project. And so this Future Assembly is around the idea of exchange. So I have a number of partners. One of them is Vanza in South Africa, um, Wising in Cambridge. Um, I'm also in conversation with Space um, here in London. Um, and so the idea with this particular one is that we have an artist who's based in South Africa and an artist in the UK. They um, have residencies in each location and then they're commissioned to make new work that will be shown at the Biennial. Um, so the idea with that is about platforming opportunities for artists, peer-to-peer um, -peer learning, as I said, the opportunity to... One thing that's key is about um, kind of like sharing privileges. I mean, one thing we don't realise is that just by living in London, like you have access to so much information, so much material, so many exhibitions. If you're living in Lagos or you know another city on the continent, you might not necessarily have the opportunity to just walk down the road and go to you know hundreds yeah. of galleries in London. So it's just about sharing that. Like it doesn't always have to be about cost or money. It yeah. can be, you know, why not have a conversation with this this artist or this person? Um, and this time round, uh, first edition we just brought one artist over here, um, and this time round we're sending a UK artist to mm -hmm. South Africa to Vanza. So that will be quite exciting and yeah. challenging. Um, and all of this came out of a need to, or a desire to give opportunities for artists to experiment and explore um, kind of outside of the the, um, the pressures of the kind of commercial gallery yeah. circuit. So not feeling like, oh, I have to make a painting that's this big because this is the size of the yeah. booth at the art fair. 
or you know something like that so it's just about saying well maybe I don't want to make anything or this thing is not really sellable but I want to explore this idea Um, because I think there was a kind of gap for that in relation to artists from Africa and the diaspora because um, you know the market is starting to pick up yeah. And uh, which is great, you know, it's important, it's a really important element. Um, but that it also to be a kind of healthy ecology, there needs to be kind of other spaces and opportunities in play. So, yeah. this was to kind of to feed into that and also addressing my own curatorial practice, which is very much kind of process driven. I'm learning more and more, it's really about these conversations that happen and, and context and kind of creating something out of a particular context. Um, So this is kind of set up the context and the research and the process that will then feed into my presentation at the Lagos Biennial. You spoke um, briefly about your time at at Tate and I remember you saying, um, talking about you suddenly realising that not only were you the only black woman at the space but you were the from a class background. Yes, yeah, so we touched on this a little bit in the conversation already. The yeah. the idea, the the point where kind of race and class intersect, kind of. Yeah. yeah when I first got to Tate, I um, was quite conscious of the fact that I was one of maybe two black women curators or black people within the curatorial department. Um, and to me, like the first week, I kind of carried that around at the back of my mind, feeling a little bit uncomfortable about that. And then I kind of had this realization as I was talking to people that, okay, it wasn't that. The thing that was making me feel different was actually that I was one of the very few people from a working class background in that space. And I think that's actually what set me apart further down the line as I went through my career um, was actually, I feel that that was perhaps why I didn't have the confidence to interact or to speak at certain levels or whatever, I don't know, but um, that was quite an important realisation and I think it's something that needs to be addressed because quite often, you know, I think um, race can, the way that we talk about race can be quite flattening because, you know, there's there's so many different kinds of experiences and, and actually the fact that you know, probably we don't have the same colour skin, lots of variety within that. So I think blackness needs to be understood as like a multiple experience as yeah. well. And I think it can be quite flattening yeah. when we, we talk about it as like a singular grouping experience. But yeah. also we need to think about how class or, you know, poverty or wealth kind of yeah. like play into that and like how people um, interact with each other. Yeah. You know, wealth is a culture. Yeah, and well. do you think there'll be like there's a difference between a black person or a person of color f- um, from a working class background in the exp- in the like the opportunities that they have? Do you think that's different from a black person that comes from a, a wealthier home? Definitely, uh, definitely. I mean, one thing I learned from going to the Royal College is that when you go to prestigious institutions, it's as much about the network of connections that you yeah. gain from that. So imagine if you've had that throughout your entire life you know, you will be afforded opportunities that yeah. somebody who hasn't had that won't, regardless of your race. Yeah. Um, or you will have confidence to speak to this patron about X, Y, Z, because, you know, probably they're similar to your parents' friends. Yeah. Or, you know, so there's absolutely a difference, and that needs to be recognised. And I think as much as thinking about race, I think sometimes it's um, an obstruction to, to dealing with other issues. Yeah. I think I've learned a lot... Um, just speaking to you about it and actually the whole process of doing this this program by ArcQuest I think it's a really good idea um, 
not just an opportunity for me and you, but whoever gets to listen yeah. to this. Well, thank you so yeah. much for inviting me. It's been a real pleasure to meet you.